Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am pleased to have Katie Pope, who advises honor students in the Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. Katie, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This will be a, a fun conversation. Um, but before we get to your working career, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? So any hobbies you have, things you're currently reading, watching, or listening to, anything you want to share? Yeah. So someone today actually told me this phrase called serial hobbyist, and I never knew what that was, but I think that's what I am because I like trying new things every so often. So kind of my hobbies right now are, uh, growing my own herbs and trying to grow my own tomatoes, which takes a lot longer than I thought, but we're trying. Um, I really enjoy, I have a dog named June. Um, she's a terrier hound mix and we just kind of walk around Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas. So we've been kind of exploring that area. Um, I've been mainly trying to get more out and about with Arkansas since the weather is so nice and I really didn't get that much of a chance to explore, you know, when I first started or during the pandemic. So just getting out and outside and kind of walking around is what I've been doing recently. Good, good weather. Great weather. Excellent. It snowed a like a month ago though, but other than that, it's been really wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, kind of to lead us into the conversation, can you tell us just a little bit about, um, well, how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, I, so I went to a school in Fort Lauderdale called uh, Nova Southeastern University, and I went there to play soccer. So I commit, I committed there verbally like my junior year. So I had, I knew that's where I was going. And because of that, I got to explore a lot of different scholarship opportunities and um, programs within the school and the college. And I went in as a biology major and I wanted to do pre-med. Um, because I found all the classes really fascinating. Um, but I also joined a leadership program. It was a co-curricular leadership program. I think it was only in its second year. So I was like the second cohort and it was, it's co-curricular. So you were expected to take leadership coursework and you were also expected to kind of do a variety of things in the campus community to maintain your scholarships and maintain your place in the program. Um, so because I really fell in love with that because the, the purpose of the program was for us as students um, to get other students involved. So NSU was a commuter campus. A lot of, it was a smaller undergraduate population. And since so many students commuted, they really wanted us to be on campus and start building a campus community to kind of give other students a place to get more involved and get more invested in the campus culture and in the school in general. So that's where I fell in love more with student affairs um, and kind of the idea of what that could be and what I could do with it. But I was still pretty set on doing pre-med until between junior and senior year. And it wasn't until between junior and senior year when I applied for med school that I was like, I don't know if this is the path that I think I want to go on. Like I loved my classes, but when I was thinking about the career field, all the strengths and things I really love about myself, I don't think I would have gotten to utilize there. Um, 
So I kind of spent senior year reflecting and thinking about what I wanted to do, and I wasn't quite sure yet. So <laughs> I decided to work at Disney. Um, my friend was like, there's an internship program. I'm going to apply. So I applied and I worked there for two years. And then I decided that it was time to go back to school and was lucky enough to uh, get admitted to Clemson's program and did student affairs and higher education there. That's great. And I, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about Disney as <laughs> we get into our interview. Um, so one last question kind of about your getting to your role today. We always talk about how student affairs is a really small field and everyone knows everyone or they know someone who knows everyone. Um, who Who is someone that you would want to highlight who's been particularly influential to you in terms of either getting into student affairs or navigating through the program and into your current role? Who, who's somebody that you would be willing to talk about a little bit? This is a tough question because it's hard because there's so many people, so many touch, you know, touch points. And, and, but when I was thinking about it, the person who first really introduced me to the idea of the field and told me I could be great at it was Dr. Faulkner. He was someone who uh, was pretty high up and helped develop the Razor's Edge leadership program, the one that I was in. And he was um, just very open, very excited, very passionate about students, very excited about us building our leadership potential. And we had classes with him throughout my four years there. And he was just always there, but always very supportive. And I think he, he said, I always knew you'd be good at this. I just didn't want to scare you into it. Um, so I've talked with him just a few times you know I talked to him before and you know applying for grad programs and I talked to him a little bit after that and so I think he was the first person that really introduced me to the idea and really supported me and kind of lit a little spark to say that this could be something you you would probably be good at and you'd probably love to do based on what I've seen well I'm glad he did that because I kind yeah. of like having you in the field so um when, when you think more specifically about your current role, mm -hmm. like how did you, because you could have ended up in lots of different functional areas, how do you think either you made your way intentional and strategically or got guidance or just sort of found your way into the role that you have right now? I... So in Clemson, I was able to do two assistantships. So I did one my first year in a living learning community, and then I did my second one in the Honors College. And I think that really highlighted what I loved about each of those. But working with the Honors College, I loved, I love working and supporting high-achieving students because I feel like as, you know, I, as a high-achieving student in my undergrad, I felt a, a connection and a kinship with that and kind of understood some of the pressures and expectations and things that go along with that. And so because I was so much in love with what I did in the Honors College at Clemson, I was very intentional about searching for honors positions or working with high achieving student populations. So to find the role that I'm in right now was really, I, I was very limited in what kind of role I wanted to do. Um, so then I was kind of open with wherever I could go with it um, because of that limitation. And 
just knowing myself, knowing that I'm fine moving to new areas and exploring new places, I was okay to find um, somewhere I've never lived before, like Arkansas. And this position had kind of a bunch of things that I wanted to do. So advising honor students, working with scholarships, um, teaching a first year in a, now a junior year program, and then um, just being able to develop programs and improve the process by which we do things. Well, could you talk a little more about the job that you have right now? So um, I did a little bit of homework and it looks like that as assistant director, you help to advise about 800 students. So what does the work actually look like that you do? That's a great question. And honestly, the work has changed every semester since I've been here. You know, I've been in this role about almost two years and a couple of weeks. And every semester, it's been different um, as job responsibilities change, as global pandemics happen. So currently right now, what I do is primarily I advise, you know, students. So day to day, the biggest advising is from like February through April and our students will register for classes in April. So pretty much during that time frame, I am booked with advising appointments. I'm answering emails. I'm re-advising students who decided they want to change their career path. Um, I'm talking with students who've decided now they want to study abroad or now they want to do this. So with honor students, you usually, you don't meet with, sometimes you meet with them once, sometimes you meet with them 10 times during the semester, just because of, they want to talk about all these really cool opportunities they found. Um, so I'm doing that. I also, typically we do events and typically we do, um, you know, other additional programming, but that's been a little bit on hold right now. But I also, we teach, we now decided that we we're going to teach a junior level class for students who are starting their thesis process. So um, I, I think I, maybe I'm going, I went too far, but I am the assistant director of the Walton Honors Program. <laughs> going back and now that's my title. Um, so we have an honors college and then each college within the University of Arkansas has its own honors program. So I work specifically with honors business students. So I, we, me and my associate director serve, we have about 800 to 900 now students in the program. So we're their advisor. They have to meet with us every semester, at least once to remove like an advising hold so they can register for classes. But again, some of them I meet with like five times. Um, and um, they, as part of the program, they have to do a thesis. So a lot of students were lost about that. So you know, I suggested we do a one credit class about what the thesis process could look like, and then they could do their other two hours with an advisor. And so that was really amazing. I got to help develop the syllabus and teach a class. And it, it feels like my little baby a little bit. So that's um, a lot of fun. So that's what I've been doing this semester, teaching that class, advising students. I used to do scholarships for the entire college, but now that's moved to another office, which is nice because it really needed someone's full focus and attention, um, but I still serve on the scholarship committee for that. And I do, we have a staff council. So I work in staff council doing like staff development days and just helping staff get acclimated to the college and, you know, basically doing anything to help, help them throughout their time here. Um, I'm sure there's other things I do. I just can't think of them right. Oh, we're doing graduation ceremonies and things right now. So. Well, talk to me a little bit more about the class that you created. What, 
what was the catalyst for it? Like, was it your idea or was it an initiative that was handed to you? And then how have you designed it? What, what's it look like? It is, so we typically have students do three hours of thesis and me and Jason, the advisors, don't really have much. We just tell students you have to find an advisor and they'll walk you through it. You know, it's basically a really big component of their honors experience, but we don't have any, we don't really have any say or, uh, you know, we don't have any control over it. We don't really, you know, have much to do with that process is between the student and whoever they choose to be their faculty advisor for their thesis. And we found that a lot of students were really lost, really confused, um, and students were also starting it too late. And so because they started it too late, they decided not to complete honors. So we were, it was kind of a retention within honors. They would still graduate, just not within the honors program. So um, I kind of suggested, what if we have a class where they do one of their hours with me and Jason in spring of junior year, and we kind of walk them through what are the different options, you know, what are, it, so it's kind of like a, almost like a, a thesis orientation course. So what are the different options? Um, what is the timeline? What is, what even is the timeline for a thesis process? When should I start? When should I have this component? When should I do this? When should I have a thesis advisor selected? Um, we also have um, faculty come in and talk about different projects they're working on. We have, um, have somebody from the library. I was very adamant about having somebody from the library come and show students how to use library resources. Um, our business students don't not that they don't write, but they don't get as much writing as maybe other, you know, majors. So having, um, and they also, we have our honors college that provides a lot of funding for research grants and opportunities. So they really wanted more of our students to apply. So we had them come in and talk about ways to get money for doing their thesis, which they need to do anyway. And then we have workshops kind of built in where they work with our business communications lab and go over everything. Um, so in this class, they're actually preparing materials. So they're, by the end of the class, they're going to tell us what are some projects, past thesis projects you're interested in, because they can go through a database and look. Who are some faculty members you think you might ask to be your thesis advisor and why? Um, they'll kind of write an abstract of, of a, that's towards the end of what they might want to do. They'll do a reference page. They'll do a timeline. So they're going to make their own timeline as we go through class about what they need to do and when. And then they also have to go get all this reviewed um, and then turn it in and do like a final presentation. So, and all the materials they're developing in class, take them to be able to apply for a research grant through our honors college. Wow. So hopefully they'll be able to, by the end of this class, they'll know what they're doing. They'll have an idea of where they wanna go, who they wanna work with, and they'll also be prepared to submit an application to get funding for their thesis. So I was very, I'm very proud of it because I was, <laughs> it's my first thesis that I've, or thesis, excuse me, it's my first syllabus that I've made. And then it's not like an academic, you know, necessarily course, but it's, it's a helpful course. It's a helpful resource for students and we've gotten good feedback from the course so far. That's great. So is it required of all students? The class right now, so we did a pilot this spring. Um, and we did ask students, should this be required? I think we may eventually require it, but so we have about 
maybe 130 students graduating each year. So that's kind of the caseload for junior year of how many, you know, 130 to 150 probably that would take this course. So we kind of planned this all last minute and recruited students into the course and we got about 40. Um, that's great. Yeah, it was, it's pretty good. And we, we, the benefit of doing it over Zoom and over online is we have this really great format that I think this class works really well in because we can bring guest speakers in via Zoom Mm-hmm. And they can just kind of talk through that. And we don't have to worry necessarily about getting people in front of getting people in a room and getting everybody there mm-hmm. at the same time. So actually current the current uh, skills that we've built using Zoom and using some of the Blackboard and which is our Canvas and like online platforms has been we've been able to accommodate a lot more students into the class because of the flexibility it provides us. That is great. Well, congratulations. It'll be fun to see out of those 40, how many actually follow through and complete the thesis. So yeah, we'll be able to look and see how many apply for grants and funding. I'm excited. That's awesome. Um, I know another part of your program is you have a student mentor pairing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like how is that matching done and particularly for the mentors what are some things you think that they i mean obviously you can highlight some of the things the mentees get too but the mentors i'm guessing benefit quite a bit from the experience as well so what are things that you see um them learning through that experience absolutely they get a lot of we give them a lot of um leadership opportunities within the peer mentor program. So we have our freshman business connections class, which is taught for first semester on, and we teach the honors section. So all the students in our class are honors. So we really try and build a community within honors, you know, small college feel with big college resources or big university resources and the matching. So For our sophomore peer mentors, it kind of depends on timing. So the matching is a little different each year, but it's essentially like the peer mentors say, okay, I have this hour each week to meet. And then we allow the incoming freshmen to sign up for what times work for them. And then they get matched that way. So it's kind of more of a timing thing than it is like by major, by hometown, things like that. Mm -hmm. But we do encourage We introduce, we have 24 peer mentors and about 240 incoming freshmen. So each sophomore peer mentor gets about 10 students that they get in their small group and they're required to meet once a week outside of class. And the peer mentors develop lesson plans for these students, things that they would have wanted to know um, that maybe we don't teach in class, like about meal plans, about where to eat, about how to budget, about how to time manage, about how to study for these classes. And the way that our business curriculum works is every student takes pretty much the same set of classes their first semester. So for really their first four semesters. Um, So our sophomore peer mentors just went through this the year previously. So they can kind of talk and and give them information and give them like study tips and things like that about some of the tests. But it's also a place for them to really reflect on their experiences and see other students that may be going through the same things that they're going through. Um, but yeah, our, our peer mentors develop those weekly lesson plans. They're the ones who develop it. They're the ones who meet with the students. They're the ones who have a lot of ownership over what that looks like. And in the class itself, so the class meets once a week for about an hour and 15 minutes. 
we'll have our peer mentors give presentations in class um, like about professional professionalism, about internships, about all kinds of things. And we'll, we'll have them in class to give, you know, the student experience of things. Because me and our associate director can tell you academically and tell you kind of the, you know, the general trajectory, but our peer mentors are the ones who give life to that. Um, so they get a, a lot of uh, leadership and opportunities within that. And we also provide them bonding experiences. So um, our peer mentors, our sophomore peer mentors are selected when they're freshmen. So in December of their freshman year, after they've gone through the class, we'll send out an application and then they will fill it out and they'll go through an interview process um, with our lead peer mentors. So for the sophomore peer mentors, we select about four that are gonna lead the next process. So they get that additional opportunity should they want it and should they, um, and usually it's a timing thing or just who we think would work really well as a team of the 24 peer mentors. We select you know, anywhere between three and five. And they're the ones who go through the interview process. They look through the questions, they'll ask the questions, they'll, they get to, be on the other side of what an interview looks like. And that's beneficial for them because they're like, I didn't realize how, you know, interviews would go on this side. So since they get to interview someone else, it's almost a reflective experience in that sense where they're like, oh, okay, I get, you know, that was a great answer. That was a great way to go about this. And you'll be happy to know we ask situational questions. So it's not, um, we get to really see how people think and how they prioritize certain aspects of certain questions. Um, and then they're selected based on that. And then our lead peer mentors lead the new freshman peer mentors in spring of their freshman year. We do bonding experiences, get them ready for the next year so they can lead our incoming freshmen in the fall. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really interested in near peer mentoring in a lot of different contexts. And um, based on the reading that I'm doing, those are some of the most valuable resources someone can have because you, it's great to have someone who's, you know, further along and maybe established in a career, but someone who's just gone through what you're going through, there's just so much value in that. So that's great. Yeah. And they all talk, they say, I still ask my peer mentor. It's the person because they're sophomores, they're only a year ahead. So really, a lot of students still utilize their peer mentor throughout their four years right. <laughs> asking questions. And it's a way for us to help build community within our Walton Honors program. Which I imagine goes even beyond graduation for some students. So yeah, it's That's wonderful. Awesome. Okay, so here is the, the thing that I'm really, really curious. Of course, I'm interested in all of these or I wouldn't be asking <laughs> you these, but... Um, based on your experience as a student, as a graduate student, and in your current role as a professional, are there differences in working with honors students based on your experience than what the experience you might have working with a non-honors undergraduate student? Yes, I think it's it's interesting because there's also differences in honor students between universities mm. based on the selection process as well. 
So if I'm thinking about the difference between honors and non-honors here at the U of A, I don't have as many experiences with non-honor students, but I will say when honor students come in, there is a sort of level of expectation and almost an inherent pressure to how they need to perform because their identity is so connected to their academic ability. Um, but then they're also kind of put into really tough classes and really difficult courses. So when they don't succeed, it's it's pretty damaging in, in the beginning because, you know, some of them have come in and they've never had a struggle with um, a high school course before and they're just used to succeeding. So when they come in, there's kind of a little bit more of a, tends to be a little bit more shocking to the system for them not to succeed in classes because they just, know they're going to or feel like they're going to and we do have a lot of great students who do succeed but those who are kind of in that um in that frame of of not doing as well as they think it can be really shocking um but it, it's interesting how we select honors students is that it's pretty much an automatic admission if they get certain gpa and certain act scores they're in um and the application is doesn't take very long. It takes maybe a minute to do. Oh, wow. Like, they just, you know, it's just automatic. Mm -hmm. So at Clemson, the students go through a really, a pretty holistic application where just because they get a 4.0 and a 36 doesn't mean they're getting admitted into the honors program or the honors college there. They really have to fill out additional like letters of recommendation, applications. They, it's, it's reviewed by professional staff and faculty who are pretty tough on because it's a very competitive process. So I think those students who, who go into Clemson and there's also a fee to be remain in the honors college. So there's a lot more, not investment, but the investment is different into the honors college than I maybe feel like it is here because of the, what it takes to get in. Now to stay in, you know, it's different. And I think also what I found is if students are not wanting to stay in the honors program, they just don't, they just leave. There's a lot more, it feels like a lot more students are just not wanting to stay in than at Clemson where they've already invested a lot of time, a lot of money. And there's a lot, um, they'll, they'll wanna stay in. So they'll wanna do what they need to do. Whereas here it's a little different. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting that there's differences in honors students across universities, but I think that the pressure and the expectation is one of the biggest things. And there's a lot of competition and competitiveness, uh, which can be good or bad, as can the expectations. You know, some allow it to really push them and some allow it to kind of eat them up a little bit. Right. Um, so some of the conversations I've had have been around kind of that identity and what that means and how you how you manage that and how it's not a bad thing to come here and take a class that challenges you. It doesn't mean you're not smart. It doesn't mean you're not, you know, going to be able to succeed here. It just means that you're pushing yourself and that's good. That's why you're here. But um, it's interesting. And I don't know what it was like at Clemson, but students were allowed to change any grades they got like in spring from like a pass fail scale. 
So a lot of students who got Bs don't want that on their transcript, even though a B is a good grade. So it's interesting to see how many of our honor students were like, can you change that, please? <laughs> so it's not on my transcript because I don't want it to look bad. But yeah. So, so the, the change is related to the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, the po okay. grade policy change was we allowed students to change any grade that they got to a pass-fail scale. Um, so it would not be reflected in their GPA, but that was just for spring. It was, it's kind of gotten less and less. So in fall, it was something in spring, it was something different. So it's interesting to see how students utilize those tools, not tools, those policies to um, how, how different students utilize those policies. As a former non-honor student, I wouldn't have <laughs> been changing any Bs. I would have kept those. <laughs> yeah, interesting, right? You know, we almost had to be like, you don't need to change a B. Right. And they were like, but I don't want it on my transcript. I don't want it to look like that. I want companies. And I'm like, well, they, they might look at a pass and think you got a worse grade than a B. So yeah. it's kind of, it was an interesting set of conversations to have with students. Um, but yeah. I think that's kind of the main difference I see is that that pressure, but there's a different pressure too, if you're not in honors, but honor students put a lot of pressure on themselves or they're maybe not their parents always do, but mm -hmm. there's a different level of engagement with parents as well with honor students. I think mm -hmm. some are, some are very, very involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um, stay with the pandemic thing. So you talked about, the course you developed and how because of the situation that we're in or maybe partially informed by it um you learned some things about the opportunities that are created through virtual engagement mm -hmm. and then the opportunity for students to change um change grades are there other either opportunities and possibilities or challenges as you think over the past, I guess at this point, it's a little over a year um, that have impacted your work or your students' experiences. Like how has that unfolded for you? The most difficult thing I went through last semester was teaching a first year seminar. Mm -hmm. um, so that seminar that we have is supposed to be built in a way to foster engagement with the students. Um, and it's supposed to be built to get them connected to each other, get them connected to resources like me. And the way that we had to kind of go about it is they told us that we needed to be in person. We needed to teach it in person because the freshmen needed that touch point. They need, of anybody, they needed at least one class to be in person that they could come to campus, that they can connect with. Um, but we also allowed students to opt out and be, watch it from their dorm rooms or watch it online. Mm -hmm. So that was really difficult. And that was a challenge because we, I would be teaching and I would have to stand in front of my webcam and be teaching to people online, but also in person and try and connect them in a way. It's difficult to do if they're in multiple places. Um, so we had to kind of get creative and do breakout rooms, which I'm sure people are sick of at this point, but um, like breakout rooms and, but also make sure we're taking care of people in the classroom and answering those who are in the classroom, but also over the chat. And so it was kind of 
everything was kind of everywhere. And we also were given a new set of curriculum to, to use. So that was a challenge of, of learning everything. It was kind of like drinking out of a, is it fire hose? Is that yeah. the noise? So that's what it felt like. Cause everything was new and we also had to make sure that if a student had, if we've gotten an email about them, you know, being tested positive for COVID, we had to make sure they were not in class mm. and all that, which, and by the end of the semester, everybody pretty much logged in from their <laughs> dorm room anyway, as mm. the semester progressed, we got fewer and fewer students in class because mm. our class is at 8 a.m. as well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was, um, that was a challenge because I didn't feel because of, because no one was in really one consistent place. Cause people would kind of pop in and out of class. Like they would be one week, they'd be online one week, they'd be in person. Um, I never really got to know any of the incoming freshmen. Um, and I feel like they never really got, they didn't get maybe as much out of it because you, you know, you had to kind of teach <laughs> so many different formats in one moment and like in one section. Um, so that was a little challenging. And obviously for us, I think the benefit of our honors program is the community we build and we have like an honor study lounge. Students are cohorted into other honors courses. They, the honor study lounge is right next to me and Jason. So they can usually pop in and say hi or ask a question or anything. Um, and then we usually have events where they can meet more students and really build that community aspect. So we didn't really, because of how, because we weren't able to be in a physical space or have students come in and say hi to us because we had to have our, our doors locked. Um, we didn't get to build that community aspect. So I think a lot of our students were doing the academic work of being in the honors program, but weren't getting the community benefits. So we lost a lot of students this last year because of that because I don't think they felt the benefit of being in a community where the community wasn't really there. So we've been trying to be intentional about how we're going to build that and what we can do next. And um, so that's kind of the challenges, but some of the pluses is I think it, whenever I have advising appointments, I do them via Zoom and you really get to know students' personalities and they invite you into their room. Yeah. So some students have like flags in the background or they have posters or you know some student was really excited about I think his Lego set and he showed me his Lego set about something that he built so it's kind of fun to travel a bit through that student experience about where they are and let them show you um, show you where they're physically at mm -hmm. um, and I think students are you know more comfortable in their own space and whenever we're doing advising they seem less less stressed a little bit. Um, so that's a positive. And then just having, we had an internship panel, you know, like you said, we are an internship panel, an alumni panel. Mm -hmm. um, so like you said, we have, because of the community, we build a lot of students who graduate are able to kind of come back and, and give talks. So we did an alumni panel where we had students from all over or past alumni from all over who got to talk about their experiences and connect with students and that was something we wouldn't have been able to do as easily without that. So I think there's a lot of benefit to being able to intentionally connect students using the online platforms we have now mm -hmm. that we maybe weren't able to do before. And I think we'll still be able to utilize these moving forward and hopefully people won't be as, the Zoom fatigue won't be as strong in the future. 
So it'll be more impactful when we're able to have those, those types of programs. That's great. Well, and that was what I was going to ask. If students are more comfortable in their spaces, if you could continue Zoom advising, if that's what the student wants in that format. Because, um, yeah, I love your point about seeing their space. You just know a lot about them potentially. So that's great. Well, let's um, shift gears a little bit and let's talk Disney. Because I believe you're open to conversations about Disney. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what your experiences were there and maybe with a special focus on transferable skills or um, things you've learned that, or things you did that maybe were very similar, both in your work um, for Disney and your work in higher ed. Uh, really whatever you want to talk about so <laughs> well I did the Disney college program which you're allowed you can apply for during your time as a student or up to like six months after you graduate so I applied um, in hopes that I would do that for a gap year because I wasn't sure I wanted to do I was pretty confident I wanted to do student affairs but by the time I had decided it was a little late in the application cycle so I applied for Disney and I was accepted into a merchandise position. So you can do different roles around um, either the parks or the resorts. So I did merchandise in Animal Kingdom in Dinoland. Mm -hmm. And I wore the most obnoxious, beautiful costume ever. And um, it, it was like fluorescent green dinosaur pants and like a bowling shirt. But I ran carnival games and sold merchandise and but it was kind of more than that you never just do your role you're kind of really expected to be a guide for the guest experience mm -hmm. so guests will come up to you and ask you all kinds of questions and you have to be able to kind of give them advice and tell them what you like and kind of just suggest things that they may have not even known about um, and they really encourage you to kind of go into the park after work and learn about everything at Disney so that you can suggest stuff. So to me, that is a bit of a transferable skill for what I do now, because it's a little bit just making sure you're letting people know what they don't know, because they don't know what to, students don't know what to ask all the time, and that's fine. Um, but probably the role I did that's the most transferable is is because I was there for two years. So I did merchandise, but I also was lucky enough to be a trainer. So I got to train new people coming into the area and I got to train people that were, you know, I'd been there three months and I was training people that were new and you have to train them. There's five different days of training. There's one that's, you're really, you're, you're kind of training people on how to be a Disney cast member a little bit, but also about the role, you know, but you can really train anybody how to run a register. The biggest thing is training them how to interact with people and how to have fun and how to be who they are. And also the hardest one was training people on the carnival games. <laughs> so the carnival games are where you really have a mic and you have a spiel and you have to give this script and you have to kind of be grandiose and you have to make it an experience. And you also have families and kids that are wanting to play, but there's safety aspects. So it's a lot and it's hot outside and people are, you know, they have high expectations of you. So training people to 
go through that process and learn how to run a carnival game, learn how to be confident enough because they get two days of that and then they're on their own. So you have to train them to a certain level, train them to be confident and train them also to have fun, which doesn't sound like you need to train people to have fun, but people are scared of that. They're not wanting, they come in, they're told they're going to do merchandise and they're told they have to run a carnival game. Um, so a lot of that was giving people space and encouragement that what they're doing is they're doing a good job or, you know, there's not really a wrong way to go about certain things. There's a way that makes sense to you. So in all those training, you want them to know how to run the game, but you also want to give them space to run it their way. So just because they don't do it in a way that you might have isn't bad at all. So usually I would show people, this is kind of how I do it. This is what makes sense to me. I'm going to do it a couple of times and I'm going to let you do it. And then you kind of have to let them, let them do it a couple of times, let them work out the kinks on their own. You know, you don't want to step in too much because you don't want them, you don't want to micromanage them. You want them to kind of, sometimes they'll do something and you'll see that they're like, oh, that I should do it differently next time. And you let them work it out. It's only if they're making a huge catastrophic mistake that you're like, okay, wait, <laughs> we need to fix this. But I think learning how to give them the space to be who they were in that moment and find out what works for them rather than saying, oh, here's how I do it. This is how it needs to be done. It was harder to do it the second, you know, that way of, of stepping back and letting them kind of work it out themselves. Cause sometimes they're, you can see that they're scared and they're working it out and you kind of have to, as they're working it out, you have to say like, you're doing a great job. I really loved how you did this. Keep going, keep trying it out. And that's kind of what advising is like a little bit for me is not giving them, this is your path. This is what you need to do. Go for it. It's kind of stepping back and saying, okay, this is the path, but what makes sense to you? Tell me what, what do you want to do? What makes sense? And what, what do you think is going to get you where do you want to go? Do you know where you want to go? So giving them space to kind of work that out in their head. Cause I don't want to tell anybody, this is your life. That's not why I'm here. And a lot of these students sometimes just need to work it out a little bit and ask questions. And, you know, I can be a sounding board, but sometimes I think they expect for them to come in and me to tell them their whole life plan. And that's not why I'm here. I'm here for you to tell me. I'm kind of like the bumpers in the bowling. What are those called? The bumpers? I think it's bumpers. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I feel like I'm at. I'm keeping you from going down a path that's really going to hurt you, but I'm not trying to I'm not going to bowl for you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what you need to do. And I think that gives them a lot of autonomy and a lot of confidence as they move forward through our advising appointments. Because if I have them tell me what they need and tell me what they want to do, they feel more confident in their direction rather than me telling them what they need to do. Well, and it has them ready to bring those skills into whatever comes after their undergraduate degree too, instead of being expected to be handed a checklist, then this yeah. is how you get from A to B. B is where you're headed, yeah. but how you get there can be individualized. Yeah, and how you get there, how you get there matters for sure. And how you get there mat should matter to you. You know, we're not, this isn't a, I think a lot of, you know, I don't want to project this onto everybody, but I think there's this idea that I just need to get to point B and then I'll be good. I just need to graduate and then I'll be good. 
Whereas what you do between point A and point B, that matters as to where that influences what you're going to do and kind of informs where you want to go. So I think sometimes I have freshmen come in and this is another honor student thing is they want to plan out till graduation. Mm -hmm. They want to say, what should I do? What should I minor? And I kind of think I might want to do this. I might want to do that. And I'm like, well, you know what? You don't have to, that's a great idea, but let's just get through this semester. Like that's possible. Really what I've heard, what I think is if that's the path you want to go on, that's totally possible. Something that that's something we could work towards, but Let's just get through the first semester. Think, think with that in mind, but keep an open mind. You know, some people come in locked in and ready to go down this path and not move from it. And, you know, I just want them to be able to take a moment in their first semester to look at up other options and think about what interests them. There's plenty of things that they've never even heard of. There are plenty of jobs that are going to be, you know, there before, maybe that weren't there when they started, but are there when they're going to graduate that they may have never even heard of yet. So I think a lot of it is just kind of saying, yes, yes, that's possible. It's possible to do that, but we don't have to do that right now. We can, we can have a moment to enjoy your college experience. That's great. Okay. So the last scripted question I have before you get to talk about whatever else you want to talk about, if there's anything you want to add, um, so we talked about the pandemic and one of the things in your experience, so you did virtual interview, mm-hmm. got the offer and hadn't been to the place where you are now. And I know since you did your search and where we are today, there are a lot of students who have kind of that's you, you were way ahead of the curve on that one, right? <laughs> um, but having done that, do you have suggestions for job seekers or people who are hiring? Because whatever happened on Arkansas's end worked for you, right? Mm-hmm. You, you went there, you're still there a couple years later, um, thriving, it sounds like. Um, so what advice do you have? If, if I'm the searcher, what did you do that was helpful? Or maybe what didn't you do that if you had it to do over again, you might've included, but then if you're making the position offer, what did Arkansas do really well? And what are some things you've learned since then that you might also incorporate? This is a fantastic question. I'm so happy to talk about this because it was so weird when I did it Uh um, two years ago. I remember telling people that I accepted the job without ever having stepped foot, not just on campus, but in Arkansas Mm -hmm. and people going, oh, okay, sure. (laughs) So um, (laughs) yeah, and I would say the number one thing, well, utilize your network for sure. You know, I I spoke with you about what campus was like. I was lucky enough to know my brother who had a friend that went to campus through the Walton College. I got to talk to him about the student experience. Um, I spoke with others who worked on campus. Um, And I also took a lot of schools and I hope, I think it's probably even better now. A lot of schools have put out a lot of good virtual tours and virtual things for the student experience. 
And so I took a tour, like a campus virtual tour through our orientation website to kind of look about what campus would look like. I kind of went on Reddit to look at Fayetteville, what Fayetteville in Northwest Arkansas was like. Um, but I also knew myself and knew it was something that I would be comfortable with just because um, I have moved around a few times and I have been able to, you know, I know that I'm comfortable with moving to a new place and building a new life um, just because I'd done it before. Um, but I think, yeah, utilizing your network and being able to, you know, don't ask for some of those resources. I'm sure there are people on campus that would you know, be able to do a virtual tour or show you virtual resources that they've probably worked really hard the last year making. So if you're, whoever is your search committee isn't able, doesn't initially extend that to you, I think maybe asking if there's opportunities or resources to get to know campus more in a virtual setting, if they have that. Um, for the, those who are, um, I guess, forming the, doing the search, Something that worked really well for me is after, and I mean, not everybody's willing to do this, but after I accepted the job, um, or not after I accepted, after I was offered the job, the associate director told me, you know, if you want to schedule a phone call just to talk through everything, I'm happy to do that. And we talked on the phone for like an hour mm -hmm. and not just about the job, but about Northwest Arkansas, about all kinds of things. And to me, that was really lovely because I was like, oh, this is the person I'm going to be working with the most I you know I know I feel like I can get along with them as well so just a casual conversation and I've offered that to other people who are new that are being hired you know if you want somebody to talk with them that's separate from the search process that can give them like if they don't already have somebody um you know let me know I'm happy to talk with them about what it was like for me to move here and what it was like for me to do because just for me having that phone call was probably one of the reasons why I accepted it just because it gave me more time and more, you know, more of an idea of what it would look like. Cause it's hard in an interview to get like snippets and think, you know, what you would do, but that conversation worked. Um, I know, I know that there are different, there may be like different people on campus that you could talk with, maybe just allowing, just having somebody maybe outside of the search process that's a little informal or not as scary that you can allow them to, you know, speak with if they want to know more about the campus. But I think just kind of talk, yeah, utilizing your network, chances are, you know, somebody who's either worked there or know somebody who's worked there. Um, and I mean, you connected me with someone else who I talked to as well. So a lot of, I think there's a lot of, a lot of people you could probably connect with and it's not a bad thing. It works out. It's worked out for me. I really enjoyed it. But again, I, I kind of reflected and knew what I wanted and knew myself. And that helped a whole lot with being comfortable enough to accept a job in a place I'd never been. Well, it's funny because I remember there were some people who said, I would never do that. And it's like, mm, yeah, you will in a year. Almost everybody will do that. So, um, but it has to be a little surreal for you to have foreshadowed you know <laughs> that process but um no that's great and you know you talked about that hour-long phone call not only do I suspect that you got information but what you said that showed you how you were valued you know yeah. and the gave you hopefully a preview of what 
your work community and your work team was going to feel like. So um, that's great. Well, this has been great, Katie. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or share either projects you're working on or life in general, insights, anything at all? Um, I, well, one thing I just wanted to say to you, because when you were asking me who are, who are people that are influential, you are very influential. You and Rachel are very influential to me when I was at Clemson. And, you know, I'm not sure how much I get to tell you how much I appreciated all the help you gave me throughout my time there. And um, this is probably really inconsequential. You may not remember, but we had an assignment that we did and you made a comment, the Pachacacha and Blackboard. Mm -hmm. And I screenshotted it because it was such a wonderful, you made this comment about the, the presentation, but also something like, you know, I know a lot of us going off the idea that we all are a little bit hard on ourselves. I just want to let you know that you're amazing or something like that. And I screenshotted it and I still have it. And I look at it every now and then, and I appreciate you and your words and just wanted to let you know that your words matter and how much, how much I felt appreciated and, and cared for in that moment and throughout my time there because of, you know, great faculty like you. And I try and return that to students. I'll write them little notes every now and then just maybe out of the blue about how much I appreciate the work that they're doing and because I know how much those words can matter. So I appreciated that. And I wanted to share that with you. I really am touched by that. Thank you so much, Katie. It's funny that you mention it because I was thinking about this as you were talking <laughs> um, and I'm like, yeah, I don't really know how I'm going to work that into this conversation, but it was that presentation in particular, I got to see a skill set from you I had just never seen before. And I think we talked about it afterwards and you talked more about your Disney experience. And I'm like, like, I saw you doing that kind of work, mm -hmm. even though it was for a class assignment, you were just, you were, you were very good. So, but thank you. That's, that's very kind. And, you know, the best part of everything you just said is that now you do that for students because we all need it. You know, we all, and especially those unexpected moments, sometimes we don't realize how much we need it until we get a message like that out of the blue. So thanks for doing that for me today. It was very kind. You're welcome. I appreciate it. You can be on this show as many times as you want. So <laughs> I can, I've got plenty more compliments for you. So yes, I'll be here. Excellent. Well, um, I really do want to thank you for everything. I, I, a last question that I like to ask is, what in your world is bringing you joy right now? Whether that's work-related, life outside of work, what are some things that, that make your world a little bit better? I think connecting with people that mean a lot to me. So like this is bringing me joy. Um, the fact that Jen will be producing this is bringing me joy. I think uh, I, I've, I've still reached out to our cohort and talk with them every now and then. I spoke with like Grant the other day and Jared a little bit before that. So just connecting with people, being able to connect with people and continue to keep that is bringing me joy and continues to bring me joy. Yeah, people are the best part of our profession, for sure. Mm -hmm. so, well, that's great. I really, I thank you very much for making some time. I know we're right at commencement and that's not a slow time for anyone. <laughs> um, and lots of people probably wanting to have conversations with you right now, but 
um, the fact that you're willing and able to spend some time really does mean a lot. And um, just thank you again, Katie. I really enjoyed this. Thanks once more to our guest, Katie Pope, who for some reason I called Emily in the <laughs> document that I sent to her, but um, I do know who you are for real. I really enjoyed our conversation today. And um, Saxa's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by Saxa. And we thank them for their support. Additionally, the show would not be possible without my friend and Katie's friend, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. So thanks always for your support and collaboration, Jen. And then today I would like to leave everyone with a quote from Emily Dickinson, forever is composed of nows. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. And I hope you all have a beautiful day. <laughs>